0: Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora. Well, Black Friday fatigue sets into the U.S. The PBOC unveils a, depo- a deposit protection scheme with a 500,000 yuan coverage and zinc, copper and aluminium futures denominated in yuan will make their trading debut today on the Hong Kong exchange. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll have a look at changes in global wealth. That's with Sarah Merret of the Wealth X Institute. We'll also talk about the reality of Black Friday sales with RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Then Joe Hall of Toys R Us will talk about how Toys R Us is digitizing Christmas. Richard Harris of the Port Shelter Investment Management uh, Group joins us as guest host. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. So, Richard, are all eyes on the ECB policy announcement this week?
1: Well, I think they... Probably are, but mainly because the news is going to be quite slim as we come into December. Um, I I think what's likely to happen is both with the ECB and the Bank of England, we'll probably see no move at all. Um, It is December after all, and I think it would shock the markets if there was a move. Um, But there is some talk that maybe Mario Draghi might actually say that he's going to do a little bit more than he is. He's been the man of talk and not of action at the moment. And I think the market's going to want to see some action early in the year.
0: Yeah, there's a series of data to be released on both sides of the Atlantic that uh, will probably shed more light on European woes and US strength. Let's see, we've got... um final purchasing manager indices for Europe and the U.S. We've got U.S. uh, monthly jobs data and we've got the ECB's updated forecasts, of of course. Um, One much-awaited data point is the ECB staff inflation and growth estimates. That's after data on Friday showed that inflation in the block was back to a five-year low. Well, I guess we'll just see what happens at the policy announcement on Thursday. In markets, well, markets ended November on a very positive note, with the U.S. up 5.7% on the month. Richard, can you bring us up to date on this?
1: Yes, indeed. We had a pretty good month in November. Um, the U.S., as you saw, did quite well. In Europe, the German DAX was the standout market. There was a Uh, uh, 7% to 9,981. As we said, ECB head Mario Draghi promised to reflate the European economy, and that was generally seen to be quite good all round. The UK ended November up 2.7%, up at 6,723, while a French CAC index was up 3.7% to 4,390. Rises in other European markets were more muted, but that can be compared to uh, markets that were down. Norway, of course, a big petro economy was actually down 3.3% and Australia was down 4%.
0: So what about Asian stocks?
1: Well, the market with the yellow jersey was Shanghai, which had a fantastic run, being up 10.9% in November, and that hit uh, 2,810 on the Shanghai A-Share Index. Um, Hong Kong was uh, almost exactly flat, neither up nor down in the month, uh, and that ended the month at 23,987. The Nikkei was buoyed by good news about further QE, but that... uh, only managed to be about 3.2% up to 17,460.
0: And the long bond?
1: Well, the long bond, we've seen some appreciation in the bond market actually over the last week or so. And even over the weekend, it's currently yielding 2.16% uh, with gold becalmed at the 1,160 level.
0: Okay. Uh, markets are open. Now the Nikkei is up. uh 0.12% to 17,480. Australia is down eight-tenth of a percent to 5252, and Solskopi is also down six-tenth of a percent to 1,968. The U.S. appears to be suffering Black Friday fatigue. Early discounting in U.S. stores, more online shopping, and a mixed economy meant that fewer Americans shopped over Thanksgiving weekend. Now, this is according to a survey of shoppers released on. Sunday by the National Retail Federation. Let's bring in Barry Wood, who is our RTHK's international economics correspondent. Good morning, Barry.
2: Good morning, Renita.
0: So, Barry, based upon early reads, the crowds were quite thin on Friday in uh, many parts of the country, but then traffic was expected to pick up over the weekend. What did we actually see?
2: Well, we saw a lot of traffic. I mean, look, it is true. It wasn't a gangbuster. It wasn't something that was blown out like it was in some previous years. But I will will just stress my own personal situation. I was driving through Tyson's Corner, which is the suburban Virginia shopping center that really is huge, and the traffic was absolutely jammed on the freeway, and that was all due to Christmas shopping on Black Friday. So here in Washington, things were very good. So maybe the rest of the country fell back, But not here in D.C.
0: All right. Now, both uh, Macy's as well as Target have reported that their online sales did incredibly well. Do you think, Barry, that there is a move for the U.S. consumer to go online rather than shopping in person?
2: Yes, there is. No doubt about it. It's been rising every year and I think people are much more comfortable with it, and you've got very fast delivery from the two delivery services, the UPS and also the FedEx and the U.S. Postal Service. But people are more comfortable, and they're shifting online, and in many cases, Renita, they're doing it because they're not paying any sales tax, you know, which in some jurisdictions can be as high as 4% to 6%. So that's a real savings. Now, some states, of course, charge sales tax but others don't so it depends where you're buying from and whether you're getting some kind of a break usually you're getting some kind of a break in terms of not having to pay shipping so online is growing and the early signs are very
1: positive it seems strange then barry that you're stuck in traffic jams while everybody's online shopping there must be um finding more time to do other <laughs> stuff <laughs>
2: oh well richard there there is a disconnect i admit but uh, let's Let's just say that some people were working on Friday. They were probably trying to get out of town. But I couldn't help but notice the big Macy's store and uh, the Saks Fifth Avenue. And I think that all those cars were headed in there. But look, it's a mixed bag.
1: Do you think that the, uh, now that we've got Black Friday, which is, let's face it, still in November, do you think that the whole shopping season is being extended? So, uh, I mean, there are two schools of thought of this. One is that people are going to shop more because they've kind of forgotten that they've been buying in November as well. And the other thing, actually, that we may actually see a much less intense shopping experience.
2: Well, I think it's hard to, hard to predict. I mean, after all, this is uh, not yet here in the States, December one. And yes, Black Friday has got a lot of attention. I notice that they're using that term now in, in, in Britain. But it's the deals. If you've got a big deal and the word is out that you can get a super discount from shopping early, people are going to respond to that. That's one thing that the online retailing doesn't do so effectively. But I think it's too early to say. I think it's a very positive thing. You know, let's face it. When you've got a 3.9% GDP growth in the third quarter, and people are feeling better because consumer confidence is up, I think we're going to have a good Christmas season.
0: Absolutely. Now, Barry, um, some interesting things happening with Black Friday this year. Firstly, shopping started uh, on Thanksgiving Thursday itself. We've, we've sort of touched on that. But uh, the Saturday after Black Friday uh, is coming to be known as I think the term is Small Business Saturday. And we saw President Barack Obama out there shopping with his kids um, to support small businesses. So, Tell us a little bit more about that.
2: That's interesting. Well, you know, he was in one of the small local bookstores, not part of a chain. Look, I think it's no uh, secret that in the States, uh, most bookstores are shifting online because of Amazon's power. But uh, he went to a private uh, bookseller. He bought 17 titles. So he's really making a statement. And I think uh, he is also aware that uh, he probably owes considerable debt to having two books that really propelled him into the national spotlight. So he's aware, and he's making money off books, too, because the residuals on those book sales, um, you know, Dreams of My Fathers and the other book whose name I can't recall. But this is, this is very impressive. But it's anytime you've got the president of the United States going to a bookstore shopping and other small businesses, this is a positive thing.
0: So do you think, Barry, then it's more about uh, supporting independent bookstores or, as you suggest, perhaps his, the sales of his own books rather than actually small businesses?
2: Oh, no. I think he's very much behind small business, and it is true. But, you know, look, if, if you go to, to the malls, uh, you're not going to find the a number of Barnes & Noble outlets, and you're not going to find Borders, which closed over the past year. And so bookstores, more than anything else, have suffering. So I think that was a deliberate attempt by the president. I don't mean to suggest that uh, he was uh, plugging his own book, because that's long in the past. But uh, he did owe a lot to having a book published that um, put him into the national spotlight. It's also interesting, Renita, that um, there was a mall that uh, one store didn't open on Thanksgiving Day, and that store was fined. Uh, you know, so have you got a national holiday where, for a day of Thanksgiving, which goes all, all the way back to the American Civil War in the 1860s, uh, when, when many people in the business community are saying, now, hold it, forget about uh, having a family gathering over Turkey. Let's, uh, let's get out and do some more shopping and do
1: it earlier. <laughs> Barry, going a little bit more to into the economy, the uh, U.S. bond market has uh, seen a little bit of a rally over the last week. Is there anything behind that?
2: Well, I'll tell you, I think things are happening here, and I'm not sure what it portends, Richard. But when you've got the long bond at 2.18%, that is down from 2.4% at the beginning of November. And don't forget, at the beginning of 2014, it was at 3%. All the predictions were that the the, the 10-year bond would be at 3% at the end of the year. And it clearly is related to the $66 West Texas Intermediate Oil price. Mm. Something is happening, and let's not forget all of the solar, the wind, and certainly the shale gas, you know, refining in the United States is going to be impacted if the oil price stays this low. It may be good for consumers by putting fuel in their their SUVs, their pickup trucks, and their cars, but uh, for lots of people in the United States... $66 oil is is troublesome, and I think that the the lower bond yield must reflect some concern that is tied to the energy situation.
0: So that said, Barry, with oil at a four-year low now, and with OPEC sort of stepping away, if you will, or at least for the foreseeable future, from curbing production, do you think that the U.S. is moving closer to actually achieving energy independence? Oh, boy.
2: It's so amazing just to hear you say that, because, you know, we've been the world's biggest oil importer for for decades, really. Uh, I don't think so. But these are good trends. Uh, I wonder if there isn't uh, some sense to an idea that's not debated at all politically, which would be, uh, let's harness these lower oil prices by boosting the the fuel tax so that we could cut our federal deficit a bit. But no one is saying anything about that. Uh, I don't think we're headed for an energy independence. We still haven't built this uh, Keystone Pipeline from Canada down through the central part of the countries in New Orleans. And uh, I don't think the president wants that. But we're certainly making huge progress, and that has impacted the world oil prices, no doubt about that.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Barry Wood, and he is our international economics correspondent. Well, in a major step towards financial sector reforms, the People's Bank of China has proposed a, a coverage ceiling of 500,000 yuan for mainland bank depositors. China has moved closer to introducing this deposit insurance uh, by publishing draft rules, albeit without a time frame. Richard, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I think it's quite an important because uh, most other uh, major economies in the world do have this deposit protection uh, and it all goes back uh, also to the issue of the global financial crisis that it was quite feasible if the banks went down that ordinary people like you and I, you know, with our small savings, would uh, would actually lose them or lose part of them. Uh, so I think it's quite an important move to bring in, and certainly uh, part of the economic liberalisation that China wants to see happen.
0: And speaking of important moves, uh, the Hong Kong Exchange will launch a milestone commodities trading platform today by introducing Hong Kong investors to three yuan-denominated metal contracts. The three contracts are zinc, copper and aluminium, and they will be traded electronically with each contract size set at five tonnes, which represents a fifth of the normal contract size traded on the London Metal Exchange. So Richard, you know, two weeks ago we had the launch of the Stock Connect, um, now we have this. You know, how big of a move is this for Hong Kong?
1: Well, I think it is important. I, you know, these are all small bricks in the wall, if you like, and we're going steadily towards uh, some form of economic liberalisation, um, especially use of the renminbi overseas it's been quite interesting that even though the u.s dollar has appreciated substantially over the last two to three months we've seen the renminbi keep pace with the u.s dollar now we know that it's largely a fixed uh, exchange rate but the fact that the chinese authorities despite having a fairly sluggish economy are happy to keep the exchange rate reasonably strong and pegged to the u.s dollar is i think an indication that they're much more interested in seeing the renminbi used giving it confidence around the world and used in world trade um, and in trading contracts like this. So I think it's all part of the plan uh, that we're starting to see unfold.
0: All right. Well, in currencies, one uh, one U.S. dollar will currently buy you 118 yen. One euro is currently worth 1.24 U.S. dollars and one pound sterling will buy you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 10 cents. We'll be back to look at more about China's property prices and wealth. That's right after this.
3: How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the budget? Boost the economy. Meet housing needs. Care for the elderly, or should we focus on education, health care, and the environment? Make your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk
0: or call our hotline, 2810-3768. China's property prices narrowly recovered in the largest cities in November, breaking a six-month fall. The average price of a home in Shanghai rose a weak 0.1%, although property prices in the rest of China continued to fall. Richard, what do falling property prices actually mean for China, especially given the slowing economy?
1: Well, China's the home to something like 5% of the world's ultra-high net worth individuals. And these are people with net worth of 250 million Hong Kong and above. Um, much of their wealth is in property, so obviously movements in the property market are, are quite important for, for these people and, and these high-net-worth individuals. Um, we have on the line with us Dr. Sarah Moret, who is the Research Fellow for WealthX, which is a consultancy, and uh, Sarah, I'm hoping you'll be able to um, uh, add some light on, uh, on this particular point uh, with high-net-worth individuals and exactly uh, how much the property market is likely to affect the status of these high net worth individuals in China?
4: um, Actually, I I think this is a great question because it's certainly something everybody's been looking at, and if we look at real estate, it's a very significant industry. I mean, not just in China, but around the world. So in China specifically, we're looking at about 8% of the ultra-high net worth population having made their wealth primarily in the real estate sector. Right. So if you, if you look at that, I mean, and just as a quick reminder, in China, there are um, 11,070 ultra-high net worth individuals, right? So this is quite a significant population um, that we're looking at. And if we look at um, the real estate in general, for the male ultra-high net worth population, it's you know, 7.4%, the second most important industry. So there's no doubt that you know, changes in the property markets have an impact on these individuals. Um, on average, we're looking at about two-thirds of their wealth. Um, in in their business holdings. So if that's real estate and the prices change, we're going to see huge movements.
1: Do you often see these kind of movements when you do your studies?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what's important to remember, it's very very diverse group of individuals. So what might affect a small proportion isn't going to necessarily affect the, the average. And so certainly we've seen in the last year um, big changes um, within certain groups, but on average we're seeing you know, a huge amount of growth. And I guess that's not surprising considering the stock markets have been pretty good, even bond markets have been pretty good. Um, but you know commodities not, not so good so so i think you know on average we're looking at very good growth uh, but funds for, for some sectors it's been a bit different
1: so if you're long uh, property it, it's not so good but if you're uh, long other stuff then you're you're still going to be in the wealth categories
4: well not not necessarily right i mean <clears throat> you know it depends on the market that you're in and very often this is a trend that we're really seeing um, develop over the last 5 years in particular but people are diversifying not just Around sectors, but also around geographies. So you might have part of your uh, portfolio in in a city that's not doing so well, but if it's balanced by a property market that is doing very well, then actually you're not you're not you're not doing badly. So we've seen people in the real estate industry kind of still doing very well because they have these diverse, um, diverse strategies, right? I mean, they have you know commercial holdings, but also real estate hold, uh, residential holdings. So so it doesn't necessarily have that kind of effect.
1: Yeah. What are the major differences between, say, Chinese uh, ultra high net worths and other wealthy individuals in other countries?
4: I mean, I I, I personally think the story of China is fascinating and we're looking at a group of individuals that are incredibly young. So on average, the ultra high net worth in the world is about 59 years old. And that's quite kind of um, stable around regions. But in China, they're 53. I mean, these individuals are so, you know, six years younger. we're really seeing a population that's just coming into their wealth creation stories Um, and so we're going to see a huge amount of growth within that Um, the other thing that's I think really surprising well not really surprising I guess if you look at the history of the country but 91% of Chinese ultra high net worth individuals are self made
1: Uh, -made. and where are they making their money is it in tech or uh, other sectors
4: so I, I guess I mean, there's been a lot of hype lately especially with Alibaba and these kinds of big tech companies that are really pushing the news and, and you know, creating huge fortunes, but we're still seeing manufacturing as, as one of the, it's actually the most significant industry in China. So you're looking at about 20%, and that, that is far above um, the global average, right? In in, in the world, the top industries is actually finance, banking, and investment around 20%, which I think many of us expect, but in China, we're looking at manufacturing, and I guess that's really down to the fact it's still very much a factor-driven economy, okay. um, but then real estate... Of course, and
1: then, yeah. Great. Sorry, well, no, that, that's great, Sarah. It's uh, great to see the sort of areas we should be aiming uh, for, for the rest of us to get rich. That's uh, uh, Dr. Sarah Merritt, who's a research fellow at WealthX uh, Institute. Come on, baby,
0: like my father. The time is now 8.24 a.m., and some retailers this holiday season are turning to smartphone apps to boost the holiday shopping experience and to convey more information about their product offerings. Chris Oliver has the story. Over to you, Chris. Good morning. In an effort to connect with consumers, we're seeing
3: retailers these days switch to smartphone apps in a big way. Uh, Colin, if you like a revolution, that's changing the face of retailing. That says stores use new channels to reach consumers. Uh, we're joined now by Toys R Us's uh, regional general manager, Jo Hall, and she's going to explain about uh, two new apps that her firm is launching today as part of the Christmas run-up. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Chris. So what are you, what are you unveiling today?
5: Um, what we're doing is taking some of the sort of traditional elements of Christmas and giving them a fun new digital twist using our uh, Christmas countdown app.
3: Okay. And then you also have a storytelling app that's part of the... Absolutely.
5: Um, We're combining digital and physical and um, enabling consumers to work with our apps uh, by zapping the codes that are embedded within our Christmas catalogue and also download them onto their mobile phone to bring elements such as uh, the advent calendar or even email their wish list through their mobile phone online and uh, enjoy Christmas in a whole new digital way.
3: So I've heard these uh, apps described as a new way of developing a channel with consumers. Mm. So it raises the awareness, raises uh, product uh, knowledge and detail. Uh, What what do you find the most valuable uh, sort of side effect of the apps? Do they actually build up uh, traffic?
5: I think the smartphone is such an integral part of everyday life now that what we're finding is consumers want to combine their social media with their shopping experience with also uh, new content. And there's no doubt that by combining all those elements, uh, combining them onto the mobile phone, we're engaging the consumers in a whole different way and in a method which they want to connect with brands and with products.
3: So as, as I understand it, this is the third app you've unveiled this year. What advice would you have to other business leaders out there considering, I guess, stepping into the smartphone revolution?
5: That's right. This is our third app. I think it's all about understanding your consumer. And we're a, we're a kids' fun store and we're a fun brand. So we provide gaming, we provide uh, product information, uh, ability to take quirky photos uh, and share that across all the digital platforms and I think that's why we're adding value by adding additional content and entertainment for our consumers.
3: So did you drive the development of the app or is it something that the Hong Kong vendor did?
5: No, no, we've driven it very much so. Uh, We're taking assets such as streaming content playing uh, additional games and we're taking all of that rich content uh, and using the technology to stream it uh, and by using augmented reality as opposed to a QR code it means that we can update the content on a daily basis.
1: Joe how much do these apps require parental uh, involvement you know you sort of think you give a toy to a kid and they sort of play with it over Mm. Christmas but actually apps presumably for some kids need more parental involvement, which might be a good thing.
5: Well... Our apps, obviously, are designed for children, so they're absolutely 100% safe. Uh, But the the child can very easily download it from the App Store. It's free of charge, and it's just full of fun content, which we can update, on, as I say, on a daily basis. So it's just another way of engaging the the child and giving them fresh content, Um, content perhaps that they wouldn't normally be able to access, such as uh, the video of Frozen, for example. You can play that now on your mobile phone via our app. Um, So it just engages the consumer with a whole level of content that perhaps they wouldn't normally ac- be able to access
3: so it's it's
5: the december
3: 1st kickoff to well we could That's say right. the shopping season and then the run-up to christmas uh what are the top games this year or top toys this year
5: Well, Frozen is still incredibly strong with the girls. And uh, Big Hero 6 is the new Disney video, which is releasing this month. It's coming out very strong as well. And, of course, you've got Lego and Arts and Crafts and the traditional toys, which are still as popular as ever.
3: And one word, drones. Will we see them this year?
5: (laughs) Yes, we are selling drones in our stores. Uh, They are still very popular.
3: All right. Thank you very much. That's Jo Hall. She's Regional General Manager of Toys R Us.
5: And thank you for that, Chris.
0: So a uh, few things to look out for this week before we wrap up the show. We've got China's PMI numbers. We've got the Eurozone's final readings on manufacturing and services. Uh, of course, we've got the ECB's policy announcement on Thursday. And uh, Australia and India's central bank decisions on monetary policy also due out this week. Richard, am I missing anything?
1: Well, I don't think so, except that this week is quite an important one for professional fund managers because this is where we like to get our portfolios all in a row and set up. You know, it's always a very bad thing to be dealing after around the 10th of December because markets are a weak, there's low liquidity. Um, uh, so people like to get set now. So uh, if you're in that league, this is the time to get set. And that's really why we tend to not to see too many announcements around here because um, uh, investors don't like to be whiplashed at this time of year.
0: All right. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is up three fifths of a percent to 17,570. Australia's ASX is down four fifths of a percent to 5,253. And Sol's speed down three quarters of a percent to 1,966. Brent crude oil is currently at $68.52. And gold is at $1,151.10 per ounce. Thank you, Richard, for joining us this morning. It's always a pleasure. That's Richard Hammond of Port Shelter Investment Management and I'm Renita Malhotra Hora wrapping up for the show. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. Today will be cloudy with a few rain patches at first. It'll become significantly cooler later on in the day. Currently the temperature is 20 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 71 percent. Time for the half hour news with Samantha Butler. Tensions are high in Admiralty following confrontations between pro-democracy supporters and police near government headquarters. Last night, student activists called for a blockade of the complex until the government addressed their demands to scrap Beijing's framework for the chief executive election. Just before 7 o'clock this morning, police for a second time pushed protesters off Lungwar Road near the chief executive's office after the demonstrators occupied the highway overnight. Our reporter Maggie Ho is in Admiralty.
4: Police have driven all protesters, not only off Longwall Road, but off Tamar Park and a footbridge between the Letco Complex and the United Centre. The tensions are still running high here on Tahlequah Road, where protesters have moved to. They are shouting angry remarks and chanting slogans, such as, shame on the police and the officers who are standing on the footbridge overlooking the road. Meanwhile, not only the police officers... Some protesters, too, are calling on people to calm down and stop pelting things at the police. Um, The clearance operation, it seems, has stopped for the moment, and this matches the senior superintendent Fred Church's announcement that the action's objective is uh, only to reopen Longwall Road, but not not to clear the entire occupied area in that mode.
0: The government has temporarily closed its central government offices at Tamar this morning and postponed all morning visits to the complex. There have also been minor scuffles in Mong Kok.